We have been in a series called Grow to Go, and it's been a series on apologetics. It's just looking at the Christian faith and doing what the Bible commands us to do. The Bible commands us to have a a reason for our hope and uh, to be ready to share that. And to be ready to share that, you have to know it yourself. Long before I was a squirrely adult, I was a squirrely college student. And while a squirrely college student, um, I was in my college group at one point, and um, I got to know a guy that was in there and um, actually heard him teach uh, as far back as when I was in college. And um, he's been a, a good friend and a, and a good ministry partner through these years. We've been in the same city for a long time, and we reconnected before this series. I've already mentioned him to you that I went and sought his input um, on this apologetic series. Just said, Neil, hey, how would you approach this? How would you go about teaching some of these things? Um, He's written a couple of books on the subject. He does a, a radio spot now. Um, I think he's got his own private Learjet. I'm not sure on the last one. That one's hazy. That's on online. I haven't fact-checked that yet. Uh, no, but would you welcome Neil Mammon? He's a friend of mine. He's going to be sharing with us uh, this morning. And uh, I think he's using an iPad for his sermon notes. So you're in for a treat. Should be, should be good. How's it going? I was born in Ghana, Africa, to East Indian parents. And when I first came to Silicon Valley from Africa in the Middle East in the 1980s, there were probably less than a thousand Indians in all of San Jose. If I was ever walking down the street and I saw another Indian, I'd do one of these. And of course, since we were the only few Indians in all of San Jose, they would come over and start talking to me. And if they were married, if they were an old, if it was an older couple, they would then try to find out if I was married. You see, if I wasn't married, they wanted to arrange a marriage for me. That's what Indians do. You know, none of the silly dating and breaking up business. You know, you'd be talking to an Indian guy and, uh, and, and he would be there one day and the next day he'd be gone and, uh, he'd come back with a wife. And you go, whoa. I, on the other hand, couldn't get myself to do that. I had to do it the old-fashioned way. I had to find myself a very beautiful American girl, and I had to convince her to marry me, and I think I did quite well, actually. So, uh, um, it, it, But it took a lot of work. Thank you. Uh, it, it took a lot of work. I mean, I had my parents were sending me emails all the time. Not emails, sorry. Pictures all the time. And uh, my roommates would go, yeah, marry that one. Yeah, marry that one, you know, and it was just... Uh, uh, but, you know, Indians have this thing they do, right? You've probably seen this around. You see an Indian, they're talking, and they do this thing with their head, right? Right? And most of you guys are like, well, what is that? What does that mean? Oh, I'm, I'm here to give you, let, put you, uh, you know, let, let you into a really deep secret. It means it's cool, you know? It's just like it's cool. I mean, it's not the word it's cool, but it's like, yeah, yeah, that's kind of okay. I mean, for instance, you know, two, two Indians meet across the, two Indians from my hometown uh, meet uh, on the road, and, and they're talking to each other, and one guy says, hey, Are, I up and saw me, how are you doing? Oh, very nice, very nice. <laughs> you, know? you know, and they say, hey, I was over at Ratna Swami's house the other day, he went home to get married. Oh, very nice, very nice, yeah. But, you know, the point is that many years ago, you could be out in America or in the streets here, and you wouldn't run into somebody from another culture or another country or another religion. But today, they're all over the place. I mean, when I first came here, nobody knew where I was from because they hadn't seen Indians. They thought I was, I, I was Latino. Now, you have to understand, I had no idea what this meant. I'm thinking Latino, the Latins, that's Romans. Do I look like an Italian? What do you think? 
I'm not Italian. I'd say, no, I'm not Italian. I'm Indian. And they'd say, oh, what tribe are you from? I'm like, no, we left the tribes long ago. We had civilization before you guys, guys, man. Anyway, see, the Lord said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And some of you guys didn't do that. So the Lord said, okay, I'm going to send them here. And so we came. We came and we want you to preach the gospel to us. But the point really is that, you see, now they're in your schools. They're in your high schools. They're in your elementary schools. They're in the public schools. They're in the stores. They're working next to you in the cube next to you. They're all over the place. You can't go to a 7-Eleven without seeing one of my countrymen. Now, I want you to know that they don't run the store. They own the store. Because, you know, he was an engineer for a while. He said, this engineering is too tough. I'm just going to buy myself a 7-Eleven, and I'm going to hire my cousins to run it, you see. So that's how it works. But, see, you can't go anywhere without running into Indians or Arabs or, you know, or what, Japanese or Chinese, because Chinese have been here a long time. But you can't run in. You won't run into, the, you'll run into these people all the time. And they have other religions. They're Buddhist or Muslim, or Hindu, or Parsi, or whatever it is, and your kids are going to come home from school, and they're going to say, Mom, Dad, how come we're not vegetarians? How come we don't go to the temple? How come we don't pray five times a day? How come we think everybody else is going to hell except for us? Isn't that kind of intolerant? Isn't that kind of mean-spirited? And if they haven't asked you that question, they are going to ask you that question. And the question is, how are you going to answer that to your kids? Or how are you going to talk to the neighbor across the street? Perhaps you're here today and you've had doubts about your own faith. Perhaps you've had a tough year and everything's gone wrong and you feel that God doesn't exist or has abandoned you. And you ask yourself, how do I know this is all for real? How do I know God really exists? How do I know the Bible is true? How do I know that I'm test, trusting in a God who is really there? So today we're going to talk about some of those things. And usually this talk is given at the beginning of an apologetic series. But I think it's a very important concept that you guys, and I want to give you something to take away, even though you've already been introduced to apologetics. So here are two myths we're going to look at. You guys ever watch this show? Yeah, I watch the show. My mom, my wife says I'm a nerd. So anyway, but uh, they're going. We're looking. We're going to look at two myths. The first myth is all religions are basically same. Saying yours is better is arrogant. This is what your kids are going to ask you. That's the first myth. The second myth we're going to look at is the myth that people will always hit you with, and they'll say all faith is blind, and the opposite of blind faith is no faith. So let's do a little, let's do a little test here. I'm going to give you a little question, and I want you to answer it if you feel comfortable out loud, but. Well, answer to yourself first. Why are you a Christian? Finish the statement. I am a Christian because. Now, you guys are kind of cheating because you've already had the apologetics talks. But answer the question. I am a Christian because. Now, if you're not a Christian here, if you're visiting here, then I want you to answer the second one. And the question is, why are you not a Christian? I am a atheist. I am a Buddhist. I am a Muslim because. And that's the answer I want you to put. Now, if you feel comfortable... Why don't you turn to the person next to you and finish the statement for them? Only if you feel comfortable. I always judge the, the uh, spirituality of a church by how many people talk at this point. No, I'm just kidding. No. If you feel comfortable, please talk to your neighbor. Sometimes it gets out of hand and I have to slap people back to get their attention. Okay, okay. So let's, let's talk about this now. Let me ask you a question. Let's say you're picking 
Let's say you're picking a religion. You're looking for a religion. You're trying to choose a religion. And this, of course, is unfair because you've already had the talks before this. But let's say you're looking for a religion. What should you look for? Should you look for kindness, uh, love, acceptance, forgiveness, eternal life, 70 virgins? What should you look for when you look for... What should you look for when you're looking for a religion? Truth. Truth. Exactly. You should look for truth. Why? Because even if they promise you 70 virgins, you're not going to get the 70 virgins or the 70 virginians. You know, you're not going to get them, with all with loaded shotguns, but you're not going to get them unless what? It's true, right? We can promise you eternal life, but you're not going to get it. We can promise you hope and love and kindness, but you're not going to get it unless what? It's true. I can promise you anything you want, but unless it's true, you aren't going to get it. So there's nothing else that counts. You should test each religion's claim the same way you would test a used car salesman's car. You should check it out. Now, I was born in Ghana, but I grew up in Sudan. You guys would know where Sudan is? You know, sometimes when I say I grew up in Sudan, some people think, isn't that a town in Texas? It is. Uh, it actually is a town in Texas, but that's not the Sudan I grew up in. The Sudan I grew up in is the one that's been in the news lately. And recently, of course, we've had what? Genocide in Sudan. And of course, now we have South Sudan and North Sudan, which is at least the beginning of some process for the South Sudanese. Now, in Sudan... While I was there, I lived in Khartoum. Now, Khartoum at the time was a wonderful city. It was a cosmopolitan, metropolitan, great city. People from all different nations were working there. And my father was a professor in physics. And we were surrounded by people from every single nation. My friends, my best friends were Muslim. My uh, close friends were Hindu. We had people who were Parsis. We had people from all different nations, all different religions. And I asked myself, why am I a Christian? Was I a Christian because my parents was a Christian. If I had been born a Muslim, would I be a Muslim? Should I be a Muslim? And that was a question I wanted to ask myself. And I asked myself that and I started studying each of these religions. And so today what I want to do is I want to go over a review of four major religions. And we're going to go through rather fast, but I'm going to show you the key salient points in all those religions. So let's start with Islam. Islam was founded by Muhammad in 622 AD. He was fasting one day in a cave in a desert, and he said that the angel Gabriel, that's our angel Gabriel, called it Gabriel, came over to him and over a period of time proceeded to recite to him what later became the Quran. Exactly. Now, in the Quran, he said, there are five fundamental beliefs you have to do, things you have to do to become a Muslim. And these are the five pillars, what we call the five pillars of Islam. The first pillar of Islam is that you have to recite the profession of faith. And every morning in Yemen, when I was growing up in Yemen, right outside a door, there was a minaret, and all over the city there were minarets, and I would hear this at about 4 o'clock in the morning, and it would go like this. Allahu Akbar! Allahu Akbar! Bismillahi Rahmanur. I can't get the hit the note, but... <laughs> Bismillahi Rahmanur Rahim. La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasul Allah. What does it mean? It means exactly what? God is great. I testify there is no God but Allah. And I testify that Muhammad is his prophet. Five times a day. And so the second pillar of Islam is you have to pray five times a day. And they would go to the mosque dutifully. Or if you were doing something, you would stop and you would take out your prayer mat and you would pray. The third... Um, uh, filler of Islam is you have to pay the tax for the poor. And this is where I say most Christians in America are Muslims. 
You see, the tax for the poor or the tithe for the Muslim is 2.5%, and the average tithing in America is 2.5%. This is a free announcement for the church. Tithe, I think, should be 10%. Hear that? I don't get a penny of that, but you guys should be tithing 10%, not be functional Muslims. Thank you very much. Dave, you can thank me later. Okay. Now, number four, right? You have to fast during Ramadan. And Ramadan was a month when Muhammad saw, had the vision. He was fasting when he had the vision. And so, therefore, during the month of Ramadan, you must fast. And the month of Ramadan is set by the moon, so it changes um, it moves around with respect to our yearly calendar. And number six, sorry, number five, you have to do the Hajj, which is the pilgrimage. That means you have to go to Mecca where Muhammad was born and see his birthplace and walk around the Kaaba, which was, he said, built by Abraham. Now, in addition to this, Islam is based on a scale system. What does that mean? That means that God, when you die, God weighs your good deeds versus your bad deeds. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you will go to heaven. You may go to heaven because God is capricious. He may change his mind at the last minute. But if you do enough good deeds, then you'll go to heaven. And here's, this, here's the thing. In the Quran, it clearly tells you what a good deed is and what a bad deed is. And it's kind of easy to get the good deeds. Because if you think of doing a bad thing, but you don't do it, it's counted as a good thing. Okay? If you do a bad thing and do it, that's a bad thing. If you do a good thing, it counts as seven good, seven good deeds or seven marks. So it's kind of easy to get in there and there are, it's very clearly outlined. Now here's a question. What do you see is the difficulty with the scale system? Based on works. Based on works. So it's not based on what? The heart or the grace. Now is Christianity a scale system? Absolutely not, Right? It's based on your relationship with Christ. Now, here's the problem with the scale system. The scale system works such a way, if I go tomorrow and rob a bank, but then I give money to an orphanage, guess what? I'm even. So what you'll see is you'll see a higher rate of corruption in any society that has a scale system as their religious views. Why? Because I can accept your bribe today, but I just need to go say some prayers tomorrow, and I'm even. It's got nothing to do with true repentance in Christianity, what it is. You've got to repent, you've got to be sorry, and God knows if you're sorry or not. You can't fool Him, and your little actions of doing these little scale things are not going to work for you. And that's why the scale system does not work in cultures. Look at any culture in the, in the world, and you see, look at their scale system, and look at their corruption rate. Okay, now, when people came to Muhammad, and they asked him, Hey, Muhammad, you made this claim that the Spirit of God or the angel of God spoke to you and you wrote the Quran. Tell me, he actually didn't write it until much later. He recited the Quran and they memorized it. But tell me, why should we believe that you are the prophet of God? And here's what he basically said. He said, God made me the prophet. He told me to show you the way. I don't need to prove anything to you. In fact, he basically said, because you, if you don't receive this teaching, you are not worthy of it. But I'm not going to prove anything. So Muhammad basically said he saw a vision the reason he believes is he saw a vision from God and Allah spoke to him. Now, when I talk to my Muslim college friends, right, and I'd ask them, you know, I grew up, I, went to the, I was in Sana'a, Yemen for three years taking, uh, doing a degree in, in uh, physics and math, and I had all these Muslim friends, and I would say, hey, why are you Muslims? And here's what they say. They would say what? The Quran told me so. That's why I'm a Muslim. Now, in the United States, many prisoners have converted to Islam. You've probably heard about that. There's a huge population of prisoners who have become uh, Muslims. And when you ask them, why did you become a Muslim? Here's what they'll say. they say, Allah changed my life. 
And you'll see while they're in prison, you'll actually see a change. If you talk to a fanatic Muslim extremist, and you say, why do you want to kill the Americans? Why do you want to kill the infidels? What will he say? He says, that's what my mosque, or it's what my mullah told me. And they really did that, didn't they? Because they believe it. Let's talk about Hinduism. Hinduism claims to be about 10,000 years old. However, my father, who's an expert in Hinduism, says that Hinduism actually is probably only 1,800 years old. In fact, one of the evidences he believes is that the book, the main book that teaches Gnostic Hinduism, basically the idea that God is outside and God is a spirit, was written in Sanskrit, and Sanskrit is a second century AD language. Everything written before that is written in a different language, and they're animistic texts, meaning that God is in the stone, God is in the tree, not God is a spirit, but God is inside something. It's only in the second century AD that we see Hinduism start adopting what we know of it as Hinduism today. Now, he believes he can prove to you that Hinduism is actually a Gnostic heresy of another religion. You see, my family dates back to 51 AD. 51 AD was when St. Thomas the Apostle, Doubtful Thomas, went into India and preached the gospel, and he converted some families there, and we trace our ancestry back to that church. Okay? Now, so St. Thomas comes in 51 AD, and what my dad actually thinks he can prove, and I actually uh, agree with him, is that he thinks he can prove that uh, Hinduism is a Gnostic heresy of Christianity. And there are a number of little lines of proof, and this is a book that he uh, has. Um, There are a number of different lines of proof, and here's, I'm going to give you one of the proofs. Okay, there's lots of them in the book. Um, Here's the first one. Here is a chant written on Hindu temples in South India. Okay, here's how the chant goes. It goes, Om Shri Brahma Putta Namaha, Om Shri Umataya Namaha, Om Shri Kanya Sutta Namaha, Om Shri Vishtaya Namaha, Om Shri Panchakaya Namaha, Om Shri Vitsula Ayoldaya Namaha, Om Shri Milkjaya Namaha, Om Shri Dakshinamurti Namaha. Perfectly clear, isn't it? <laughs> so let me translate. You ready? O oh God, Son of God, we worship you. O oh God, the Holy Spirit, we worship you. O oh God, born of a virgin, we worship you. O oh God, who is circumcised, we worship you. O oh God, who has five wounds, we worship you. O oh God, God, who died on a tree to provide mercy, we worship you. O oh God, who overcame death, we worship you. O oh God, who sits on the right hand, we worship you. Who is that talking about? Jesus. But Muslims, I mean Hindus, don't believe in Jesus Christ. They believe in Krishna. Krishna. And they believe that he helped write the Bhagavad Gita. And the Bhagavad Gita says you die and you reincarnate back to life. They talk, this book is Bhagavad Gita. is Bhagwan is God. Gita's song is the song of God. And Krishna, the avatar, the incarnation of God, comes to show us the way, not to be the way, but to show us the way to life. Right? You see the twisting of that concept there? And here's what they believe. They believe in something called samsara, the circle of life. Not to be confused with the Lion King. The circle of life, okay? Just not completely different thing, okay? In samsara, the circle of life, what happens is you're born and you live your life and you die. And if you're a good person, you come back as a higher caste. If you're a bad person, you come back as a lower caste. There are about four castes. If you are the, the, the top caste is the Brahmins, right? Now, if you are a Brahmin and you are a bad Brahmin, you come back as a female Brahmin. Yes. Women are lower, okay? Now, if you continue being a bad Brahmin, you move down to the lower and lower class. At the very bottom of the class, you get what we call the untouchables. Also, now they've renamed themselves to call themselves the Dalits. 
And the untouchables, it's a horrible life. They're persecuted, they're, they're beaten up, they're, they're mistreated, they're only given low, low, lowly jobs, and there are 300 million of them in India. And they have no reason to be Hindus because they're the oppressed class, and so that's why the Christians are moving in in that society. The Buddhists and the, Muslims and the Christians have been moving in, saying, let's reach out to the Dalits. But here's the deal. What's very interesting about that is if you're a bad Dalit, according to Hinduism, you go down into the animal kingdom. And you can become a cow. You start with a cow and you go down from there. Which is why Hindus don't eat meat. Why? Because you could be eating, you're eating a soul. You could be eating an etna, which you don't want to do, right? So, so they do that. Now, I, now I, here's what's interesting about Hinduism, though. Let's say you're a Brahmin and you're a very good Brahmin and you move up. Right? And you keep being a good Brahmin, you move up to the layers of Brahminics, because there are lots of, lots of layers, lots of castes within the Brahmins. And when you get to the very top, what do you get? Do you get 70 virgins? No, that's Hinduism. I'm sorry, that's Islam. You know, do you get to uh, multiple wives in your own planet? No, that's Mormonism. Okay? Do you, get, uh, do you get to go to heaven and live with God? No, that's not Christianity. Christianity is you get to live on the new earth, right? Right? In the presence of God. Okay, so what, is, what, what do you get when you get to the top? And I, I was having lunch with a uh, friend of mine. And see, in Hinduism, you, when you get to the very top, you get nothing. You dissolve into the Brahman, right? You dis- disappear. You cease to be who you are. So I was having lunch with a friend of mine, a Hindu friend of mine, and you have to understand the context here. This guy always teases me about Christianity, right? Are oh, you Christian, you right-wing fundamentalist, gun-carrying murderers. So, so finally I said, okay, I'm going to give them a taste of his medicine. I said, I have a question for you. He says, what? He said, look, in Hinduism, right, you're a very good Hindu, and then you die and you come back, and you keep moving up until you're Brahmin, and you die and you come back, and you offer many, many lifetimes, thousands of lifetimes, finally you get to be nothing, right? He goes, yes, what's wrong with that? I said, well, the atheists get there in one try. <laughs> he made me buy him lunch. Anyway. But here's the deal. When I talk to Hindus and I witness to them about Christ's resurrection, not Krishna's reincarnation, when I witness to them about them, he says, you know what? That's okay. That's good for you. Krishna came to teach us the way. By the way, Hinduism has no heaven. Notice that. Krishna came to teach us the way to the Brahman, and that's fine for you. Whatever you believe is good for you. Whatever I believe is good for me. I was talking, witnessing to a Hindu friend, and I explained the concept of salvation and all that. He said, but I'm a Hindu. I said, well, Christ came for all men. He says, but I'm a Hindu. It doesn't apply to me. I said, why does it apply to me? He says, it applies to you because you're a Christian. You believe what you want. I believe what I want. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it. I felt like giving him what uh, P.D. Barnum said. Everybody must believe in something. I believe I'll have another drink. Was that Barnum? It was one of those guys. Anyway, okay. Barnum said there's a, no, Barnum said there's a sucker born every minute. Okay, let's look at Buddhism. Buddhism is an ancient religion. It was founded by Siddhartha Gautama. He was a young prince with a young wife, and he lived in a sheltered palace his whole life. And the very first time he comes face to face with sickness, death, and poverty was when he was 29 years old. He'd never seen it before. And when he sees that, he realizes that he has to do something to solve life's problems. And he leaves his kingdom that he was going to inherit. And he moves on. And at the wise old age of 35, if you're older than 35, you realize why that's funny. At the wise old age of 35, he realizes that he's found life's problems. And he calls it Nirvana, after his favorite rock group. Now, 
Nirvana is when the pains of life don't bother you. So basically what it is, you follow this path, this eightfold path, and you get to nirvana. And basically the way to achieve nirvana is to distance yourself from pain. He says you have pain because you want. If you didn't want, you wouldn't have pain. And so you distance yourself from, from pain. And he talks about this, but he basically, Buddhism says that there is no God. True Buddhism says there is no God. Buddha never taught about a God. He said, yeah, you reincarnate, but there is no God. And you only avoid pain by distancing yourself from it because there's nothing you can do about it. So growing up with Buddhist friends, I would say, hey, why are you a Buddhist? What's in it? What, did Buddha ever prove that what he said was true? You know, the Hindus don't care. They're like, yeah, believe whatever you want. But did Buddha ever prove what he's saying was true? And my friend said, no, he didn't. He, he never did any miracles. Because if you look at it, he never did any miracles to prove he was telling the truth. He said, you got to figure it out yourself. The Buddhists would say, you know, I'm a Buddhist because my parents are. I've talked to many atheists who become Buddhists. They would say, I, I, I'm a Buddhist because I like their moral principles. Is there any proof that what Buddha was saying was true? No, 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 but you don't need that. Just, just follow the principles. Let's look at Mormonism. Joseph Smith was a young man in Palmer, New York. He was praying in the woods uh, when suddenly God the Father and Jesus the son both appeared to him in the flesh and they had flesh and bone. Okay? He said that they were flesh and blood and fully human and he directed them to a set of gold plates that he said contained something writing in it that had what he called reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. Now, and he said that the way he would translate these reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics is that God would give him these two stones called the Umin and the Thummin and he would take the Umin and the Thummin and he would put it in a, a large hat and he would stick his face in the hat, and he said God would make the letters of the translation appear like a text message. He didn't use the word text message, but that's the idea. And he said he would read those letters, and his friend would copy it down, and if his friend made a mistake, then the text letters would stay there until their friend corrected it, and he would, until they got it right. And so therefore the Book of Mormon was perfect. Now, his friend noticed in the picture that there is no gold plates in the picture. Nobody ever saw the gold plates. The gold plates were taken away from him after that. And this, by the way, this writing became what? The Book of Mormon. Now, what did they teach? Here's what they taught. They taught that you would become a god over your own planet, just like our god, they claimed, was a god over his own planet. They said our god was a very good Mormon, and therefore he became promoted into godhood. And you have to have many wives so that you can populate the planet with your spirit children, just like our god had to do. And they believed that our God had, you know, uh, intimate relationships with Mary, and that's how Jesus was born. Now, what's interesting about this is one day a traveling Egyptologist approached Joseph Smith. What was happening is he was going around town, and he had this little, he had a few mummies, this is back in the 1800s, right? And he had a few mummies, and he had some parchments that his uncle had left him, and he would go around, and you'd pay a nickel to go see the mummies and the parchments. And some guy said, hey, you know, what, this, this Egyptian hieroglyphics on your parchments, uh, you know, there's a guy down there who knows how to translate this, because he translated this whole book. You should go to him with your parchments, so he, he, and he can translate it, and then you can put it right next to your little displays. And the guy says, okay, that'll be a great idea. So he goes to him, and he, and he says, show me, uh, here's the parchments, can you translate for me? And Joseph Smith took one look at it, and he got really excited. He got really excited and he went to all these benefactors, the guys who were donating money. He says, look, I found something amazing. You have to help me buy it. 
And he spent all his money he had and he got all the donations he could and he bought this and he said, this that you see here is not just any Egyptian parchment, it is actually the book of Abraham, written by Abraham's own hand. And it talks about how Abraham was in the land of Egypt and how Pharaoh was, you know, and, and if you, in fact, if, if you ever the Mormon elders come to your door and you look at them, they'll usually have three books. One of them is called the Pearl of Great Price and in it is the book of Abraham. And if you open the book of Abraham, you will see on one side, you will see this, which is a wood cutting, which is basically a copy of the parchment that Joseph Smith had. And on the left is the, his explanation. And if you look at the book of Abraham, it will tell you, and this is exactly, this is a photocopy from it. Okay, so here we have the book of Abraham says that this is the angel of the Lord. This is one of the pictures that was in there. This is the angel of the Lord. This is Abraham fastened on the altar. Number three is the idolatrous priest of Elkanah attempting to offer Abraham as a sacrifice. He's got a bald head. Um, the altar for sacrifice is this four right here. And then right here, five, six, seven, and eight, all these little things down here. These are the demon gods, you know, the idolatrous god of Elkanah, the idolatrous god of Libna, and so on and so forth. And this is what he said it was. And he wrote the Book of Mormon. And there are millions of people who follow Mormonism. And they believe this is the book of Abraham written by Abraham. His story in Egypt, excuse me. But unfortunately for Joseph Smith, in the 1914s, they actually, it's a long time ago, they actually found the parchment that he had used. And this is the parchment they'd used, and they found it, and they had his handwriting on one side, and he had a whole Greek, uh, sorry, uh, Egyptian lexicon. You know, he had one few Greek, uh, Egyptian word letters, and he had a whole paragraph. And I, Abraham, was traveling, and so on and so forth. And then he had another few letters and another whole paragraph, right? And he had translated it. So they found this, and they said, yep, that's it. The, book of the, uh, the Mormon church said, yeah, that's actually his handwriting. In fact, that's his, his, you know, you can see the parchment was torn, so he kind of filled in. You notice that the guy's head, you know, the guy had no, you know, the part where his head is there is kind of missing, so you kind of see he drew it in there, and that's what it came out on the wood cutting. So they used to use wood cuttings to print things. Here's the problem here. Here's the problem. It turns out the parchment is really a scrap of the Egyptian book of the dead. It's not the book of Abraham. What it is, is the instruction manual on how to mummify a dead body. And you can find it all over Egypt. You can find it all over the world, in fact, because all those parchments have gone all over the world. And he got the drawing wrong. The guy is supposed to be Anubis, which is the Jekyll God, right? He's got a Jekyll's head. He doesn't have a bald head. Uh, this is not Abraham, like he said. This is what a dead body about to be mummified. Uh, this are not... Uh, the demon gods, these are what? Canonic jars where you put the liver and the onions and the brain. Sorry, the liver and the brain and the heart. And the kid, just making sure you're listening. Put the brain and the heart and all that in the canonic jars to mummify them. This has got nothing to do with Abraham. Now here's the tragedy of this. I took this and I showed it to some elders who came to my door. And I said, guys, Tell me what you think of this. And here's the tragedy. I mean, I love Mormons. When I was in the Middle East, one of my closest friends was a Mormon family. Eleven kids. Only the Duggars beat them now. Wonderful people. In fact, they offered to bring me to America and help me go to BYU. I went to Oregon State, but they were... No, I wasn't, I wasn't just, you know, it just turned out that way, but... 
but they're wonderful people. I still, they came to my wedding and everything. And, and, and so here are these Mormon elders at my door, and I say, look, guys, what do you think of this? And they said this. It broke my heart. They said, I don't care if Joseph Smith comes before me today and says, I lied to you. I, the elder, still believe in the Book of Mormon because I feel it in my heart. I have a burning in my bosom. Mormons say, I have faith. I have accepted the Book of Mormon. I feel it in my heart. Let me ask you this question. Are all religions the same? Some of them have a God. Some of them don't. Some of them are exclusive. Some of them aren't. Some of them have a heaven. Some don't. Some believe in reincarnation. Some don't. Okay? The only thing they're similar is none of them have evidence and all of them have works. That's how you get to heaven. So in other words, yeah, all religions are the same except when it comes to God, heaven, eternal life, how you get there. Oh, I guess that would be the most essential ones. So are all religions exactly the same? No, but what they do have is they have what? All have blind faith because there's no way to prove that their beliefs are true. And none of their founders ever allowed anyone to test to see if they're telling the truth. Is it closed-minded for me to think that they don't have the truth if I can prove that I have the truth? No. I have a Jewish friend whose wife says this. If anyone says all religions teach the same thing, I say one word, Baal. Why? Because Baal worshippers would sacrifice their children. You tell me all religions teach the same thing. So are all religions basically the same? No, this myth is what? So what did we say was the most important thing to look for in a religion? Truth. Truth. So let's talk about diabetes. If you have diabetes, you have to give yourself insulin injections. If you don't give yourself insulin injections, you could, go, you could have side effects, go into coma, coma and die. My parents have diabetes, so they have to give themselves shots or take pills, right? Now, let's say you were standing outside of Safeway. You had just gotten your diabetes shots from Safeway, and you come outside and you see me there, and I say, hi, my name is Neil Mowen. You don't know who I am, but I have a cure for diabetes. Would you like to be cured? And you say, yes, because you're not stupid. Of course you'd like to be cured. Now, here's, here's what I say. Yeah, well, here's what you need to do. Because I can cure you of your diabetes. First of all, you have to pay me 25 bucks. Okay? Uh, two, you have to stop taking your regular diabetes medicine. And number three, you have to give me that regular diabetes medicine so I can sell it on eBay. <laughs> and number four, you cannot tell anybody, sorry, number three, you cannot tell anybody that you stopped taking your medicine unless they come hunt me down. And number four, you have to have faith in me. And number five, you have to take these pills that I give you and I give you these pills. What are you laughing about? M. M stands for Mohammed and Sons Pharmaceuticals. <laughs> now, how many people here would take my pills and give me 25 bucks? Come on, come on. Oh, I see one person there. Thank you. God bless you. I see the hand. Now, why won't you guys take my pills? Look at this face. Would I ever cheat you and give you four lousy M&Ms? Four. Only four. That's because of how many you get for 25 cents in the machine. That's the safe way. Why don't you trust me? Why don't you have faith in me? Because they're M&M's, one, and two, do you know who I am? Do you have any experiences with me? Have I earned your trust? What do you need, what does somebody have to do for you to give them your trust? They have to what? Earn it. Is trust something you give blindly? Is faith something you give blindly? 
Do you blindly have faith in the first con man that comes to your door to sell you something? I, I, I say, ladies, do you have blind faith in the first greasy man who offers you a ride in this cool car? I was once talking to some junior high and high school kids, and I said, do you blindly have faith in the first guy who gives you, uh, offers you a, car and, a ride in this cool car? And one girl stuck her hand up and said, how cool is the car? <laughs> and I said, they're going to find you dead on the side of the freeway. Why don't you trust them? You don't trust them because they, you don't have any experience with them. You don't have any faith in them. They haven't, what, earned your trust. Let me ask you this. Let's say you have diabetes and you go to your doctor and he's sitting in, in a hospital and he's got certificates behind him and he's, been, he, you know, and he's wearing a white coat and he's got all these plaques and he turns to you and he says, Now, Mr. Johnson, uh, we have this new pill that we're trying. It will allow you to stop taking your insulin shots because it will give you the insulin that you need orally. It's FDA approved after 10 years, so I want you to do this. I want you to give me your pill, your insulin shots, because you can't do both. Hey, didn't I ask you that? And then I want you to take these pills for the next few days, and he charges you six times what I was going to charge you. He charges you 150 bucks. Would you trust him? Some of you would, right? Some of you wouldn't. And the reason you wouldn't trust him is because you maybe went to him last time, and he made you sicker. You go, I ain't going back there. He doesn't have, he hasn't, he hasn't, Gain my trust. He hasn't earned it. But if you did trust him, you would trust him because he had references you could trust, because you knew he works for the hospital and he has a reputation to keep, because he can show you evidence that the pills work for others, and number four, because you know that if he accidentally hurts you, you can sue him for a million dollars. But in this case, are you having blind faith in the doctor? No. Are you having, okay, so no blind faith in the doctor. Are you having no faith in the doctor? No. You have to have faith that he's not out to make you sicker. You have to have some faith in the doctor. You have to have faith that he's not selling you some sort of snake oil that the latest, what, drug company wants him to give you. You have to have faith that he is not, he is not inexperienced, that he's not confused. You have to have faith that he's not absent-minded and thinking you're a pregnant lady, unless you really are a pregnant lady. You have to have faith that he's not having an affair with you and trying to kill you. Oh, I must be watching 48 Hours too much. Anyway, but the point is you got to have the point of having faith in him after you had some, what, good experiences with him. And if you had any bad experience, you'd go find a second opinion, right? In fact, you usually find a second opinion anyway, just to be safe. So it's not blind faith. It's what? Rational faith. So you still have faith in the doctor, but it's not blind faith. It's rational faith. It's reasonable faith. It's thought-out faith. Now, it's probably the most important question I'm going to ask you today. If I go to the doctor, let's say I was 20 and I went to the doctor, and he was wrong about what he diagnosed as my condition, and I died, and I was going to live till I was 80, what have I lost? 60 years? Let's say you come to this church... And my friend, who's going to call you Carl? <laughs> Dave and I have this thing. I call him Carl Davidson all the time. Now, see, now all of you guys are going to call him that. And my friend Dave here, Pastor Dave, is wrong. You come to this church and he's wrong. He's wrong about Christ. He's wrong about salvation. He's wrong about that. What have you lost? Eternity. 
If you go to your mullah and he's wrong, what have you lost? If you go to your Mormon temple and they're wrong, what have you lost? If you go to your Buddhist monk and they're wrong, what have you lost? Eternity. If they are wrong, you lose eternity. If your doctor is wrong, you only lose what? 60 measly years. So if it's not, if it's important that you not have blind faith in your doctor, how much more is important that you don't have blind faith in Pastor Dave or some charismatic Indian who comes up here and yells at you? or some mullah, or some priest. See how dangerous it is? Now you say, wait a minute, Neil, the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. Well, in that case, let me ask you this. What kind of faith is the Bible talking about? In India, there used to be a cult called the Tagis. Now, they made a couple of movies about it, you know, Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom, Gunga Din. Um, and in the th- here's what the Tagis believe. The Tagis believe that to achieve nirvana, there's a rock group again, to achieve nirvana, they have to go out and strangle you with a silk scarf. For them to get to heaven, they have to kill you. This is what they believe. You tell me all religions are exactly the same. Now, why are they wrong if all you need is faith? They have more faith in Kali, the goddess Kali, than you do in Jesus Christ. How can I prove that quite easily? They're willing to go out of their comfort zone to kill someone. You're not even willing to go out of your comfort zone to save someone. They have more faith every day. They have more faith in their little finger than we do. If faith is all it took, if the feelings were all it took, why are they wrong? Are you just lucky that you were born a Christian or you are a Christian or you found Christianity? I say we should not be superstitious Christians. Are we as Christians supposed to have blind faith? The answer is no. Rational faith is what we should have. It's rational faith is based on facts, historical evidence, objective experience, research, logic, discernment. Blind faith is based on feelings. Now, feelings are not bad. Feelings are very important. But they should come after you've verified the truth. Then let your feelings run amok. I always say it's like falling in love with someone. You could fall in love with a drug addict, girls. You could fall in love with a drug pusher or a pimp or whatever, you know. Uh, Fall in love with the right guy. Once you find the right guy, then let your feelings run amok. But make sure he's the right guy first. Blind faith is a bad idea. Now, I've shown you that blind faith was a bad idea for you because you could go to hell. Okay? That's blind faith for you spiritually. Now, let me ask you this. Um, blind faith is bad for you because you could go to hell spiritually. Is blind faith bad for you physically? How about somebody else's blind faith? Could somebody else's blind faith be bad for you? Sure could, couldn't it? Here's what blind faith of somebody cross on the other side of the world can affect you. So the blind faith of your neighbor is of importance to you. The blind faith of your kid's neighbors are important to you. The blind faith of anybody in this society, in this world, is important to you because they can affect you. So my question is, do you have blind faith in Christianity? Do your friends have blind faith in Christianity? Do your kids have blind faith in Christianity? How do you know Christianity is true? How do you know? How do your friends know Christianity is true? And that's what Dave's been teaching you these last few weeks. You see, I'm convinced... And you've seen some of the evidence that there's only one religion that will stand the test of time. There's only one religion that will prove itself worthy of your belief. There's only one religion that can prove it's from God and is physically, rationally, and logically provable. And that is what? Historic, biblical Christianity. You see, unlike all other religions, 
Christianity isn't a blind faith. It's a rational faith built on a logical and historical foundation. I think it's the first sermon I ever gave to the college group. That line. Talking about the historical evidence for Jesus. <clears throat> here's how I can say that, though. People say, well, how, do you claim, how can you claim Christianity is rational? Here's why. Jesus made a claim. He made a verifiable tooth claim. Jesus said in Mark 9.31, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now, if you are starting it now, does this com- compare this to any other of the other religions? Did Muhammad ever make a claim that could be proven? Did Buddha ever break a claim? Did Krishna? None of them did. Only Jesus made this claim. And if you were a, if you were a religion advisor, you'll say, no, 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 Jesus, bad idea, because now they can prove that you're not God. Because you won't rise from the dead. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to prove that I am God by rising from the dead. You ask me for evidence, here's the evidence. John came and asked, John's disciples came and said, are you the one? He said, what, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead are risen. Here's the evidence. Uh, in, one of the, uh, in one of the situations, we know where they, where they were in a house, the, full, the house was full, you guys remember this, and, and nobody could get in, and so their friends opened up the top, and they let their paralyzed friend through the top, remember that story, right? What does Jesus say to the paralyzed man? He says, your sins are forgiven, he doesn't say get up and walk, he first says your sins are forgiven, and everybody looks at him and they go, your sins are forgiven, Jesus said, well, anyone can say your sins are forgiven, but to prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins, get up, take your mat, and go home. At this, the man did so. When the crowd saw this, they believed and praised God. Why? Because Jesus said, here is a physical representation of my faith. Yes, that is the mutilated mom and paraphrased version. Let's see what Paul says. So blind faith we can see was refuted by Jesus. What does Paul says? Paul says if there is no resurrection of the dead, if Christ did not physically rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain and we of all people are fools to be pitied. Paul refutes blind faith. How about the Old Testament? Well, over and over again in the Old Testament, God condemns blind faith in the Old Testament. He punishes the Israelites when they blindly follow idols that could do nothing. Remember, he says to the Israelites, he says, you go out in the marketplace, you buy a piece of wood, with half of it you cook, the other half you make an idol, and then you pray to the idol, it does nothing for you, but I, the Lord your God, took you out of the land of Egypt. I parted the, let's see, I fed you in the, I dropped the walls of, What's he doing? Those are all physical events proving that he really was God and not some emotional superstition stuff going on. And when they disobeyed it, he punished them. Blind faith was punished by God and it is ungodly. I'm going to wrap up in a few minutes. But some people came up to me once and they said, you know, if we knew God existed for sure, then it wouldn't be faith. And I thought about that for a while. I said, see, you've got a problem here though. Remember, Abraham and Moses and Enoch met God in person. They knew God existed for sure, yet they're listed in Hebrews 11 as people with the greatest faith. Knowing God exists for sure has nothing to do with whether you have faith or not. It's whether you trust God and follow Him is where the faith comes in, right? There is no question about Christianity in which the answer is just have blind faith. Never say that. Especially not to your friends or to someone who's curious about Christianity and especially not to your kids. Burton Russell said this. He said, Christians would rather die than think. In fact, many do. Is that you? I hope not. So let's look at this last myth here as we wrap up here. All faith is blind. The opposite of blind faith is no myth. This myth is what? Okay. As we wrap up here, remember this. uh, So the opposite of blind faith is rational faith. 
let's look at this. The other religion said this. This is the wrap-up of what we got about the other religion said. Allah gave me a vision, Allah spoke to me, Quran spoke to me, all these things, right? Now, here's some bad news. They did a survey of Christians and Christian college students. And they came up with the top nine reasons why they were Christians. You guys about 30 seconds ahead of me? You want to know what the top nine reasons were? Yes, exactly the same nine reasons, except you change Allah for God, the Quran for the Bible, and the Book of Mormon for the Bible. Right? Or Jesus. It's the same nine reasons. Now let me ask you this. If this is not a good reason to be a Mormon or a Muslim or a Hindu, why is it a good reason to be a Christian? It's not a good reason to be a Christian. It's a good reason to investigate Christianity, but it's not a good reason to remain a Christian. So you need something better, and that's what David has been teaching you these last few days. Let's say you had... 100 high school and college students in this church. How many of them do you think will remain Christians after college? Statistics say usually 7 out of the 100. Now, some of them will come back. It ends up being about 75% leave, 25% stay. But initially, 93% leave. This is a shocking statistic. And the major reason they cite is their professors and peers challenge them intellectually. Since they could not respond, they abandoned their faith. Let me give you a few examples real quick. Professor Richard Rorty, Wesley Princeton, University of Virginia, Stanford, says we're going to go on right on to, we're going to go right on trying to discredit you parents in the eyes of your children, trying to strip your fundamentalist religious community of dignity, trying to make your views seem silly rather than discussable. If scientists can destroy the influence of religion on young people, then I think it may be the most important contribution we can make. This professor is paid by you, parents. Here's another professor. Actually, I, I skipped that, but there's another professor who says that basically the same thing. He says, I, we want to take them away from your homophobic, fundamentalist parents' views. We have to have a rational, scientific, logical, historical proof of the truth if we want to keep our kids safe. Nothing else will work. So my question to you is, parents, how many of your kids are going to stay in the faith? Now you, say, you might say, well, I know that their faith is strong. But is it emotionally strong? Or is what? Reasonably strong. Is it rationally strong? Your kids may be subjective, emotional Christians, and they'll stay with the faith as long as they're in your home and in this church. But when they get to college, those emotions will be replaced with new emotions. And then they leave the faith. So today or, a son, today, or next time you can, why don't you ask your junior high and older kids why they're Christians, and they give you one of those nine reasons, you should be afraid. They're going to be one of the statistics. So, I don't think I'm plugged in, guys. <laughs> so maybe you need something different as a basis of faith, and that, of course, is apologetics, which is what we've been talking about here. What is apologetics? It comes from 1 Peter 3.15. I'm sure you're familiar with this verse. Always be prepared to give an apologia to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And that word apologia means defense or explanation. Apologetics is the evidence and defense of the faith. Okay. Um, here are some things that we can prove, and you've already done this. You can prove that God exists using science, the apologetics. We did that. You guys did that. And I have a book, by the way. I don't have it here because we're out. Um, you can prove the New Testament is accurate, and you did that. 
You can prove that Jesus really existed using history, and I think that you did that last week, and of course you can prove that he rose from the dead last week. So you've got all the basics, and think of how powerful this is for evangelization, and Dave's going to talk about that next week. Now, from that number, what does that mean? The 7 out of 100 kids remaining, we can change that to 75 out of 100 kids staying in the faith. It's only 25% leaving. That's what you can do with apologetics. But here's probably the, most, the second most important question I'm going to ask you. How do you change that number as parents or grandparents from 7 to 25? You see, your kids can come to church every day and you can hear, hear these sermons every day. I can preach in your youth group every day that you're in church. And yet, the church only has, what, a 17% influence on your kids. Their peers and their school and their TVs have 26% influence on their kids. You see, we can preach, Dave can preach, we can all preach this to your kids every day, and we only have a 17% influence, and we're going to lose the battle. There are only two people that can ensure that the kids learn what they need to learn. You know who that is, isn't it, don't you? That's mom and dad, isn't it? You see, with parents neutral, guess who wins? With parents on the right side of the church, guess who wins? But what does this mean? This means that you have to what? Develop a culture of apologetics in your home. You have to be teaching the kids apologetics, not me, but you. That means you have to become an expert in it. Now think about this. If your child had a disease, right? It was a rare disease or even a common disease. But they weren't sure what the cure is and 75% of the kids who had the disease died. Would you just sit back and let the doctors handle it? No, you would become an expert in the disease, wouldn't you? You'd become an expert in the cure. You'd look at all the possible cures while your kids have a disease. And the world is going to keep infecting them. When are you going to become the experts? When are you going to develop a culture of apologetics in your home? When are you, when the kids come and say, why is there so much evil in the world? How can God exist? You need to know the answer. That means you need to say, you can't say, oh, just have faith. You should say, no, honey, let's go find out. So, truth or myth, all religions are basically the same. Saying yours is better is arrogant is... Not really true, is it? Because if I can prove Christianity is true, then it's not arrogant to say that. So my question to you as we wrap up here is, will you know about Christianity well enough? Will you know enough to teach your kids and your neighbors? So at work, when you go to your cube next door and Ratnaswami Ayupan is sitting there, and you say, Ratnaswami Ayupan, do you know Jesus? And you'll say, oh yes, oh yes. Thank you. Thank you very much.